There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One, two, three, four! Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. This is part two of our, well, I was going to say favorite interviews. I don't know if they're favorite interviews, but some of the most enjoyable interviews of twenty twenty. This week, I'm talking to Dolly Alderson about her book, Ghosts, Modern Dating, and, well, quite frankly, men. And to Leila Saad about Black Lives Matter, being an actual ally, and why we all need to stop talking and start doing. First up, it's Dolly Alderson. Oh, those naughty, naughty ghosts. The people who you think are the one. You love them. You had the best day ever. And then they disappear. What happens to them? Is there literally some sort of giant hole in the middle of London that swallows them up? Did they actually get run over by a bus? Did they? I mean, I think dating me at some point was really quite a kind of extreme sport. Your chances of coming out of it alive, apparently, very slim. Um, But our next guest has written a book, trying to answer that question where do they go ghosts is out now i read it today it is funny and beautiful and it made me laugh and cry in equal measure and our next guest is the author dolly alderton hi dolly hi thank you so much for having me oh thank you for joining us um it is fabulous to have you here on a saturday night i absolutely loved ghosts i devoured it basically in one sitting and just refused to answer my phone or talk to anyone else while I was reading it it was brilliant oh thank you it is a little bit like having somebody write my early 30s dating life and reliving it which was mildly traumatic at some points um but did you set out to write a book which every 30 something woman was going to identify with I'm so glad that 30-something women have identified with it. It's not something that I ever think about when I'm writing. I never kind of Mm. write thinking, how do I make this relatable to everyone? I think I was writing about something that was very true for me at the time and very true for lots of people that I knew and friends of friends. It just felt like ghosting was a thing that was in the atmosphere and I kept hearing about. So I just wanted to try and write about that experience and find a language for that experience and hope that it resonated with with other people. One of the things I loved about the book is I think when we talk about dating now, we talk so often about oh, I've been ghosted and what it's like to be ghosted in that moment. You know, that sort of, um, that kind of two-week period afterwards where you are doing, as you say in the book, all the detective work to try and work out, are they still alive? What's happened to them? Or they've appeared online and they must be alive. Um, But actually it has a much 
deeper impact on us and how we feel about dating and how we feel about the people that we're dating. How did you go about, is that just from your own experience or was it from talking to others? How did you go about researching it? I think when you've been single for a long time, particularly when you move into your 30s. So for lots of people, that means they've been single for on and off for the best part of a decade and dating for the best part of a decade. And anyone who's been dating, particularly in the city, I think knows how exhausting that can be and how much strength of hope and courage and optimism you have to summon with every date. And I think I, I did really want to look at that act of bravery, not to make it too yeah. grandiose, but to think of how brave you have to be to to summon faith once again with a new person and know the emotional expenditure that you potentially could you could spend on someone and like I remember my ex-boyfriend said this thing to me that I think about all the time where <laughs> the first time that he met me he said he looked at me and and thought I'm going to really cry a lot about this girl <laughs> And I think that's so telling of what happens when you've been dating for such a long time that when you sit opposite someone that you like, mm. the first thing that comes to mind is not, oh, I'm going to have a wonderful future with them. It's like, oh, this person is going to ruin my life, potentially. So I really wanted to capture that like tension of, of hope and resentment and cynicism. I mean, there is a really beautiful point in the book where... Um, uh, Lola, who's the best friend of the main character, Nina, says to her, you know, Nina's got to a point where she's feeling very kind of like, I've had enough of dating. And she says to her, I'll carry the hope for you. And I actually had a friend who said that to me at one point when I was like, I, can't, I cannot date anyone else. And she's like, tell you what, I'll just hold the vision for you. I'll hold yeah. it for you. You come back when you're ready. Do you think that actually part of the book, I thought it was a real love letter to the love that isn't romantic love. Mm. That is our friends, is our family. Yeah. Yeah. And particularly, I think that there's something that happens between single women in their 30s. That's like a great romantic camaraderie that that's heightened much more than when you're a 20 something of just knowing what it is, what that experience is, how draining that can be, the amount of courage and energy that you have to summon every time you go on a date with a stranger. And I wanted to capture that. And actually, that quote is based on something that a friend of mine who's an author called Laura Jane Williams said to me when I was uh, crying over a breakup mm. into my Sauvignon Blanc <laughs> to her. And she said to me the next day, she sent me a beautiful message saying, I know for what it's worth, I know that there is a love ahead of you that is grander than either of us can imagine. And I know for you right now, it's too hard and it's too painful and it's too illogical to imagine what that love might be. So instead of beating yourself up about the fact that you can't imagine that, why don't you give that responsibility to me? Yeah. And I will hope for that for you because I know that's in your future so I will hope that for you and then whenever you're ready I can give that hope back to you and it was such a generous beautiful thing that she said that yeah. when I came to write the book I said to her that's going to be a big sentiment I think between two of the best friend characters in Ghosts and can I steal it she said <laughs> steal away because beyond romance whether it's about career or family or mental health or 
all of the big practical things that we're having to deal with in our 30s and beyond. And they Mm -hmm. get so much heavier in our 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s to be able to outsource your optimism for people to people who love you and know you and who want those things for you and know those things are in your future. I think that's a wonderful function of friendship. it's just such a beautiful thing I mean if anyone's listening to it and you have a single friend who's going through it take that sentence away send it to them now they need it Um, one of the big themes that felt for me was going through the book was the concept of time and how actually there is time is different based on your age your gender your experience of it so if you're a 30 something woman and you want to have babies and you are really feeling the pressure of time in a way that you're not if you're a 30 something year old man um and that equally you see in the parent the parents in the book you know that time is very different for the father than it is for the mother were you feeling those pressures of time when you wrote it yeah, definitely. I think something happens to you when you move mm. into the second act of your life, which if mm. people live for 90 years, which is optimistic, <laughs> when they get to 30, that is the second act. And I had a meltdown that I wrote about extensively when I turned 30. <laughs> and understandably, a lot of older people said to me, how dare you write about an existential <laughs> meltdown about aging age 30. But I do, even though I think that's kind of dramatic, I do defend a person's right to have a bit of a freak out because now with the age span that we have when you get into your 30s you are entering this big middle section and that does warp your sense of time it does underpin the next however many decades of your life with the sense of mortality and the sense of inevitability you're suddenly pushed into the life cycle in a way that most people are lucky enough in their 20s that they're not in the middle of where you're thinking about bringing life into the world trying to bring life into the world and failing to bring life into the world, Mm. parents dying, parents fading, suddenly the life cycle is very much at the forefront of your mind. And that concept of time, you know, it does preoccupy me. I wish it didn't. I know lots of people for whom it doesn't preoccupy their thoughts. Mm. Um, But it is something that, yeah, for a lot of 30-something, it's the first time you're thinking about that stuff. And yeah, it's it's that does if that's bubbling away in your unconscious, that will affect the decisions that you make and the dynamics of your relationships. And that's something that I wanted to explore in this book. Do you think that your kind of previous experience of writing, so you're very open, you've written about your life, you wrote your dating column, then you wrote your first book, which was a memoir. Did you consciously make a decision that because it's interesting, I, I've read you say, I consciously made a decision, I didn't want to keep writing about myself, I wanted to write fiction. But the fiction is still about somebody at the same age point as you, kind of going through some of the same experiences. Were you drawing from yourself or were you making a conscious decision, this is not me? I mean, the character of Nina is very different to me. Yeah. Her personality is very different to me. Her mindset is very different to me. Her family, her parents are very different to me. Her relationship history is different to mine. I really wanted to create a character who not is in defensive opposition to me, but I wanted to create a character for whom it would be a little bit of a holiday every day to be in her (laughs) head rather than mine, because my head can be a little bit tyrannical. So I wanted to be in the head of someone who had a very sure sense of self, who uh, wasn't preoccupied with the approval of other people. Mm. All the things, all the neurotic things about me that shape my thoughts, I wanted to have a little bit of a break from. So she is different to me in lots of respects and her life is very different to me. But the fact is, 
I was writing it in the first person narrative voice mm -hmm. so we are going to share a sense of humor because we observe the same things and we find the same things funny and also I'm I'm never going to be uh, you know mystical or mysterious <laughs> about the fact that I write to process the world yeah. so I can do that through lots of different characters and lots of different heads but we're still processing the same things and that's not something I feel ashamed of and I don't think that it dilutes any act of imagination or empathy mm -hmm. or fictionalizing there's this amazing author called uh, Taffy Brodessa Ackner and she was is a journalist and also has uh, written fiction and she said this phrase that when she was referring to her fiction that I now think about all the time when she's describing the book where she said, all of it is real and none of it happened. <laughs> and that's exactly how I feel when I'm writing scripts or fiction. Yeah. I can't say that I'm entirely divorced from it. Of course, of course yeah. I'm in it. I'm in every character. I'm in every emotion. I'm in every sensory feeling. I'm in every joke, but it's not a direct reflection of what's happening in my life now. It's really interesting. You say I was in every character. Were you in the men? Um, yeah, I think I was in the men, actually. I'm so glad that you asked me that because I did get to a point when I was writing the book where I thought, you know what, this is becoming a little bit of a polemic about the evils of heterosexual <laughs> men, which, trust me, Harriet, I would be very happy to write that book. <laughs> I mean, I've got so many chapters to contribute. Yes, go on. <laughs> but equally, I didn't want the book to be a transcription of me and seven of my best mates in the pub. <laughs> you know, it's not about a doctrine or theorizing. It's about getting into the heads and understanding the psychology of all these different people. And actually, when I finished the book, when I first handed it in, the first draft, I remember I was listening to an interview with Tayori Jones, who's one of my favorite novelists. Mm. I was listening to her uh, talk about her most recent book, which is about a polygamist. And she said, but she wrote in the third person narrator. And she said, I couldn't hate that man because I can't hate anyone who I write a book about. I have to understand them. I have to spend all this time with them. I don't, I'm not there to judge them. And I remember listening to it and I was like, oh, I've got to change the end of Ghosts. And I <laughs> rang my editor the next day and I was like, I need to do some tinkering on Max. I really need to do some digging into who he is, the tragedies and the complications mm. of who he is. Even if we don't delve into it, we need to see the tip of the iceberg and we need to understand him and we need my protagonist to take a degree of accountability in the tragedy that is the, their disastrous relationship mm. because I don't want to write a book that's just one woman ranting about her experience of heterosexuality. I want to understand why men behave like this. So I made some last minute changes that I'm really glad that I made to to understand and, and in a way love that man a bit more than I did in the first draft. I mean, I, I think that really comes across. There's a, a sort of beautiful moment sort of early on in the book when uh, Nina is starting off on her dating, you know, app dating life. And she starts putting lots of men into different boxes, you know. So there's the guy who always goes to a festival and there's the guy who uh, desperately wants a girlfriend so he pretends that he's a perfect boyfriend material but probably isn't. And I love that because it was sort of those tropes that I think if you follow lots of female authors or writers on Twitter, which I do, we occasionally mock male writers for doing with women. You know, we sort of say mm. they describe them entirely by their physicality and not doing them. And it's like mm. she starts in that place where she's almost 
putting them in boxes and ends up actually being able to see them as whole but flawed people. Mm. Totally. And I think, you know, I know this is not a very <laughs> trendy stance to have, but like, I feel really sorry for heterosexual men. When I look at the like, mainly disasters that I see in dating culture between men and women, I think I think it's men upholding what they think women want and women upholding what they think men want. I think there's a massive disconnect. And I feel sorry for everyone in the situation. I really do. Like, I don't <laughs> I think that dating culture has has been created in an in a in a very ancient way that we're not even aware of to maintain a structure that means that men have more freedom and more fun than women do but I don't think they're having a great time I don't think they're feeling entirely themselves and I don't I feel sad for all of us I think this is like a yeah as I said I think this is a miscommunication and a disconnect between both men and women I think there are pressures on both sides I don't think Mm. this is a matter of of a gender binary of good and bad do you think that app dating is almost creating or adding to perhaps a sort of gender warfare which is you know, all my female friends and I were not updating experience. Like, oh my God. And then they did this and you're not going to believe what this one's just sent me. And oh my God. And then I talked to my male friends and they're like, no, no, no trust me over here. It's pretty bad too. It's yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And we, we can't seem to on either side come across as we actually are. Mm. Yeah. It's such an interesting question. I mean, I'm in such a weird position to answer that question because I went to an all-girls school. Did you go to an all-girls school? I did, yes, which I do blame on my complete, blame for my complete lack of understanding of men at all. So Yeah, so I feel like you and I maybe aren't in such a, like, I feel like I can't be any sort of voice of wisdom on this because <laughs> I think if you, if your context of the world is just being with women all the time and the opposite sex are seen as the source of all excitement, all stimulation, something really mysterious, something really frightening, something really intimidating, something really scary, something that's a code to be cracked. Of course, I mean, personally, I subscribe to like those years are very formative about how you view other people. So I'm always going to feel that about men on some level, even the men that I'm very close to and the men that I love, even my closest male friends, Mm -hmm. there's always going to feel like there's that chasm so I feel like maybe I'm not the right person to talk about that cousin because I know lots of women who grew up in households that were much more progressive or where, you know, mixed sex company was much more normalized and they have more of an ease of communication and understanding and empathy with each other than I do. But for me, yeah, that it, <sighs> Venus mm. and Mars, that's always <laughs> going to be the it? case for me. <laughs> and it's, it's always going to be, but like, that's, that's something that I find interesting. I like the, I like the pursuit of empathy and understanding of that mm. language. Like I have a brother, I have close male friends. Yep. I've fallen in love with men who I care deeply about and I'm sure I'll fall in love again. And like understanding where they're coming from and how their behavior to me might feel weird, shitty, mm. you know, I've just realised I've said the word shitty, but if I'm on badass We're woman's out, just, I think it's fine that I say shitty. <laughs> I'm um, going to apologise for it simply because Ofcom is just, it's not as badass as we are. So apologies for the bad language. I'm so and sorry. And we'll take it out. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, I'm not radio friendly. I'm podcast friendly. Where there's a <laughs> diligent fine. editor. That's um, fine. I'm always going to 
I'm always going to find like the, that those differences, that disparity interesting. And I'm always going to want to learn about that. But I think for lots of people, maybe it's not, maybe, I don't know if you have friends like this. Like I speak to some people mm-hmm. for whom it doesn't feel like such an enormous gap. I, def- I definitely have friends who feel that they don't, I, I definitely have, I would say female friends who feel they understand men better. Um, and I then they almost do women and I find that sort of really strange I have one very good friend who always says to me oh gosh men are men are easy it's women that are complicated I'm like what women are so straightforward Mm. um so maybe we're never meant to really understand each other I think um your new book Ghosts is out now this officially marks a kind of I guess a new chapter for want of a very cliche term um for you going from Dolly Alderton journalist to Dolly Alderton fiction author how does that feel feels great I'm very very happy with that I loved writing this novel Mm. I would like to write many 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 more novels I'm very aware that I've uh, taken up a lot of people's time and focus and energy (laughs) over the last 10 years just blabbing about myself so it might take people some time to uh, acclimatize to me being someone who writes about made-up people in a made-up world rather than just reporting on themselves and uh, that's fine I'm more than happy to work very hard to earn my stripes on that if that takes a decade or two decades I'm happy to just keep writing novels until I get there what's the writing experience like for you do you are you somebody who finds it easy to sit down and write do you have a a structure or is it more like I need to go and lock myself in a cottage in the woods and not talk to anyone or to get this done um it's a mixture of everything you've just said (laughs) um I like total isolation phone has to be on airplane mode I need absolute routine I need nine to five and the thing that's most boring about me that makes me think I must not be a natural writer because I have never met any other writer who does this is I need an extremely comprehensive and rigorous structure before I start writing anything even when I'm writing an article you know when you're a kid Mm -hmm. and you're writing your essays and it will be like introduction (laughs) hypothesis (laughs) conclusion I do those titles even when I'm writing an 850 word column so for me I have to have though that structure to be able to uh, then improvise and be free with my prose and have fun within it but I need to know that I can do that knowing that there's a plan do you, when you're writing fiction, is is that plan literally like, and I know which character's doing what at which time, where in the, or does it change as you go? So I used to hate listening to novelists speaking about their characters like this in this sort of like fey dream catchery way when you'd hear novelists say like oh they came to me in a dream and I met Nina and then Nina (laughs) taught me so much about who she was I would listen to that and just like shut up this is stuff that comes out of your mind in a very strategic fashion and yet lo and behold I've written my first novel and I now completely empathize with this like very intimate sense of magic that you have when you're creating a pretend world with pretend people mm. that you you kind of come up with the people together you and the person <laughs> and then they take on their own life so I had when I look at the proposal version of Nina that I handed in and then the final draft of Nina they're completely different people and she did just kind of 
emerge to me on the page um and I've never had that before in writing and it is such a exciting thing you said there that um you spent sort of 10 years of your life talking about yourself so it's quite magical to be able to talk about other people do you think those 10 years I think for all of us were almost the kind of 10 years of oversharing where we all became obsessed with broadcasting whatever we were doing to anyone at any time do you think post-lockdown, actually, we are now moving into a time where maybe we value our privacy a little bit more? I think I think that it's not even to do with lockdown. I think mm. it's like a generational evolution that I've noticed. I left Twitter in May and I gave my password to my best friend and she now does all my tweets and it wasn't just it while I was doing that it wasn't to do with my job there were lots of people I know who were going through the same thing and I remember calculating from when my first tweet was which was 2009 I was like right so that's basically a decade that's basically Mm -hmm. a decade of me sharing everything And the life cycle's complete. I think it's, we're all becoming more aware of how information is shared, of how people can judge and analyze and uh, misjudge, indeed, people, uh, people's online persona. And uh, that's something we're all becoming gradually more aware of. I think naturally people become more private as they get older. And that doesn't mean that they are, you know, regretful of what they've shared in their younger life. It's just that something happened. The cliche that you don't expect that Mm -hmm. becomes true is that you do just become more private. You don't need to broadcast who you are to have a sense of who you are. So I think that that's just happening generally to my generation um and I think yeah I am I don't know about you and your friends but it's something Mm -hmm. I'm just like gradually in one way or another it doesn't matter how big our profiles are it doesn't matter what our jobs are we're all just gradually shifting to this general idea of do you know what I think it's definitely more important that the flesh and blood earth and sky (laughs) life that we lead that that takes up more time and focus and that is more important than this virtual one I absolutely agree I actually took all social media off my phone I think in July for the first time in about probably oh god even longer than that 12 years I think and I I was like I'll just take a month off I'll see what happens I cannot be bothered with it now (laughs) I feel deeply resentful every time I have to do anything with it Um, yeah, it's weird. I've, I've one of my dearest friends is an author called Caroline O'Donoghue, mm. and both she and I have this impending sense of fatality and doom, and we're very, very scared of death. And we both <laughs> took a break from Twitter at the same time. And I remember a couple of months in, she said to me, do you ever search your handle? And obviously I did. Once a week, I would put my handle into Twitter just to see if anyone was tweeting me or tweeting about me. And what was so amazing, Harriet, is like she and I both had the same experience where no one was tweeting us. (laughs) No one was sending us messages. And it's basically like if you're not online and there in the virtual world, then people are going to forget, like people aren't going to try and communicate with you in the virtual world I remember Mm -hmm. Caroline saying to me isn't it weird that you and I are both so obsessed with this idea of death and yet we search our names we see nothing come up and we both feel nothing but serenity and peace and she was like in a weird way 
it's kind of the closest we can ever understand to what it will be like to not be here. <laughs> and actually, you don't feel like you're missing out. You feel the blackness and nothingness feels like freedom. It doesn't feel like panic. And when she said that to me, I was like, maybe I'll be fine when I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, well, please don't die too soon because we need more writing from you. What are you working on at the moment? <laughs> I'm working on some TV scripts and then I'll be working on another novel, hopefully. Well, I can't wait to read it because this one was honestly like having a beautiful day to myself to read something gorgeous. I absolutely loved it. So thank oh, you. Oh, I'm so pleased you enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Dolly Alton, it's been fabulous talking to you. Dolly's new book, Ghosts, is out now. I cannot recommend it more. Go grab it immediately. That was Dolly Alderton talking about her book Ghosts and, of course, modern dating. If only we had all managed to get as much mileage out of our dating stories. I have. I just going to say I've got a lot of good ones. They're all bad. They're all bad stories. Anyway, next up, it was an absolute privilege to interview Leila Sad, the author and activist, and just incredible incredible woman who during the black lives matter campaign really helped us all understand what it means to be an ally this is her even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. A best-selling author with her new book, Me and White Supremacy, Combat Racism, Change the World and Become a Good Ancestor. If you haven't read it, I can't recommend it highly enough. It will change how you see the world forever. Lucky enough to be joined now by Leila Saad. Uh, Leila, thank you for joining us. Hi, Harriet. Thank you for having me. No, thank you so much. I want to ask you, first of all, for anyone who hasn't read the book, Me and White Supremacy, why white supremacy? Why did you go with that wording? So I started doing this work as a way to help people who didn't necessarily see themselves as racist or didn't necessarily 
identify themselves as maybe having white privilege or having racist thoughts. Um, that's who I started this work for. And I felt that it was really, really important for us to name this system that we are all conditioned into and this paradigm and this consciousness that affects everyone. And so um, in naming it me and white supremacy, as opposed to naming it, you know, me and implicit bias or mm-hmm. me and uh, white privilege, I really wanted people to understand this is so much bigger than what you realize. And it's not just those other people who you believe are the real racists, but all of us who have been conditioned into this system. One of the things that I found really interesting about it was exactly that when you say it's we think of white supremacy as something that exists over there. It's something that some bad people do, but we're not like them, so we're okay. Uh, And I say we as in other kind of white people who go, I like everyone, therefore I'm definitely not a racist. Um, And in fact, what you're saying in your book and what comes across really clearly when you work your way through it is that if you are a white person living in a white dominated society we have all benefited from white supremacy correct yes that's correct and actually globally around the world white people have privilege there even if you're not in a white society um there really isn't any place on this planet where being white is not seen as being of higher value. Um, But going back to your point about people believing that it's not us, it's them, that really comes from this fundamental misunderstanding that racism is about consciously chosen, you know, thoughts and beliefs of believing other races are superior and intentionally wanting to see other people of other races um, suffer or be oppressed or be marginalized. And that simply isn't true. It really is about how the entire world is set up, which is this um, belief that white people are superior to people of other races. And then because of that, that they deserve to dominate over people of other races and that they're forgiven privileges and are able to move around in their lives and in the world in ways that black and brown people are not able to do so in the same way. It's similar to, I think people can understand it um, when we think about male privilege, that there's a way that men are able to move around in the world and that there is no place on this planet where men are not treated as if they are better and of higher value than women. It's the same with having white privilege. What would you say to people who say, um, and, I, and I know a lot of people and I am asking largely for my own benefit, so I know what to say to them. What would you say to people who say, well, I know that I'm a good person and I know that I would never judge anybody by the colour of their skin and I'm just interested in the people. Um, therefore, I don't really need to think about whether or not white supremacy applies to me because I know I'm a good person and I'm okay. Yeah. So that part about being the good person is what often stops people from looking at their own unconscious racist thoughts and beliefs. Because if your understanding of racism is that racists are bad people, then if you believe you're a good person, you're not going to want to associate with anything to do with racism and therefore wouldn't read anything that's about anti-racism because you already fundamentally believe I'm a good person, therefore I'm not a racist. But we have to separate your, your sense of goodness from the fact that whether you have consciously chosen it or not, from the moment that you were born into this world, 
society has been reinforcing to you that white people are um, are superior to people of other colors. So if you think about a child growing up, and I know, I mean, I know for myself growing up in the 80s, you know, in Wales, and then later in the 90s in um, in England, you know, what was reinforced to me through television, through advertising, through the media, was that the people who are seen as represented as the norm are white. And if there is a black person or a brown person on the cover of a magazine, for example, or as the lead in a TV show, that that's an odd thing, that that's not normal, right? And so that reinforcement mm-hmm. has nothing to do with that you're consciously choosing to be mean or not a good person. It's what's being reinforced to you all the time. So then if that's what's being reinforced and it's what's normal, then any racist thoughts that you have are also coded as normal, right? Mm. And especially if you believe racism looks like racial slurs, it looks like attacking people of color. Like if those are, you know, that's what, that's what racism is, then you don't get to explore what, what about when you tone police a black or brown yeah. person and you tell them that the way that they're expressing themselves isn't the right way for them to express themselves? What about when um, you, um, for example, when you culturally appropriate from a black or brown culture and you believe it's cultural sharing, but you're missing the context of the fact that between your culture and their culture, that there's been a history of colonization, there's been a history of harm, right? Racial harm, that that context is missing. And so you can't understand why somebody's saying to you, that's cultural appropriation. That thing you're doing is actually cultural appropriation. And so and when that mirror is held up to you, that do you understand that XYZ behavior that you're doing, which you don't feel is racist, is actually racist? If you're holding on very, very strongly to, but I'm a good person, then you can't hear the feedback and you won't examine yourself. And so it's really important to separate, understand your goodness is not what's being questioned here. Your goodness is, is, this is not about feeling ashamed of yourself. It's not about feeling ashamed of the color of your skin. It's about opening you up to begin to interrogate what have I been conditioned into that I hadn't even realized. One of the things um, that I thought was really interesting in the book is that you recommend a list of resources. Um, oh no, is it a list of resources? A, li- a list of questions to ask yourself about. You know, how do you see yourself in the world, and do you realise that the way you see the world actually is sort of ingrained racism? And one of those one of those things is uh, the assumption that any time you ask to speak to the manager, the chances are the manager's probably going to look like you. And I remember right. I read and, that and, and I they, thought, oh my God, I've never thought if, about that. Yeah. Right. And, and I was going to add, and if they don't look like you, recognize, is there a moment of surprise that they don't yeah. look like you, that they're in a mm-hmm. position of leadership? What, what is the first thought, the automatic thought, not the one that you correct it with because you recognize that's not a, that's a racist thought to have, but the yeah. immediate first thought that comes up, um, it's about that. It's about pulling that out and really shining a light, a light on that. Um, there's something. The interesting thing about your book is, it's not really a book that you read. It's a book that you do. 
Um, so you ask people, yeah. actually, there are exercises at the end of each chapter. Uh, you ask people to keep a journal as they go through it. Um, you say, very interesting at the beginning, that there are going to be times when actually maybe you want to put the book down or it gets a bit too much. Or you're going to find it hard going, but please keep going. What made you decide to write the book? So I had been talking about uh, white supremacy for about a year before doing um, what, what was the inception of this work, which was actually an Instagram challenge called Me and White Supremacy, using the hashtag Me and White Supremacy. And I had been, I'd noticed that, um, you know, if I tell white people this is, this is racist or this is an action that is racist, there's a lot of defensiveness there. Um, whereas the difference between let me pose some, let me explain things to you and then pose some questions for you and then get you to explore how this shows up for you, that that created a different kind of opportunity for white people and people with white privilege to really explore how racism shows up for them. And it allowed them to take responsibility for their own learning while taking the burden off of me. Um, and so I wanted to create a process and, you know, it was an Instagram challenge and now it's a book. Um, I wanted to create a process where white people and people with white privilege can actually take responsibility for their own learning. I wanted them to have um, a resource that they can actually do the work with as opposed to reading and sort of intellectually taking in the information, but just it just staying there. Um, and, and when there is that sort of intellectual taking in of the information, oftentimes there's still that exceptionalism that says, oh, that's other white people, but it's not me. And this is very much about your own individual personal um, exploration of how you have unconscious racist thoughts, beliefs and behaviors, because your, your own self, that's the only place where you have complete control. And, you know, racism and white supremacy operates at many different levels, including institutional and systemic, but it also operates on the personal level and systems and institutions are created by human beings. And so I wanted to create a place where people could say, this is, this is the place where I can begin to take responsibility for anti-racism, for creating an anti-racist world by looking at myself and how I am unknowingly contributing to the world that we currently have. What would you say to people who say um, that it's all very well to try and change ourselves and to try and change our own behaviour, but until institutions actually change, nothing is going to change? That we actually need to change the institutions 100%. before we change ourselves? 100%. And that's why I say at the sort of at the end of the book, I talk about this dismantling work has to happen on multiple levels. And different people, depending on where they sit in terms of their privileges of identities, but also, you know, what they do in the world. Do they have power um, to, you know, are they in positions of leadership? Are they in positions to vote? Um, each one of those things is important to tackle, the personal, the systemic, and the institutional. Um, but it's my hope that in people doing the personal work, that they begin to connect to this understanding that it's not just about changing laws. 
it's not it's not just that right we just had the um yeah. uh toppling of the statue right in bristol it's not mm-hmm. just about toppling the statue if people's consciousness is still racist the fact that that statue was able to stay up for all these years despite efforts real efforts by people to canvas for it to be taken down and for names to be changed of schools, et cetera, that it had to take this time that we're in right now for people to say enough is enough means that even if the statue was removed, people's thinking hadn't changed. And so it's the same with laws and policies. Yes, we need to change the laws. We need to change the policies, but we also need to change the consciousness as well, because we have to create a culture of anti-racism uh, and not just laws that are anti-racist. If if it were just about changing the laws, when slavery was abolished, we would have an anti-racist world immediately. Yeah. But we don't. Uh, we're starting to see some of the real pushback against our institutions and the way they behave, particularly in the toppling of the statue in Bristol and in the protests going on around the world at the moment. What do you think the legacy of these protests is going to be? Well, I think no one can deny that we're in a really important time of history right now. Um, I I have never seen anything like what we are seeing um, around the world. It should be, you know, emphasized as well, not just in the United States, but all over the world where, you know, black people and people who are showing up in allyship for black people are saying enough is enough. You know, tell the truth about how black people are treated differently in this society. We are not we are in 2020. This isn't good enough anymore. Um, and change must come. And so I, I think it's hard to, you know, predict what will come of this moment. But I will say that it is very important for people not to feel like, okay, this is great. There's protests. Once the protests are over, we can, we can go back to a sense of normalcy um, because, you know, we, we made change. No, we haven't made change. We've st- we're starting now to create change. And it's on everybody, but especially on people who have white privilege, to really be taking up the responsibility of how can I make sure that um, these protests were not in vain, that when we showed up, um, we didn't just show up in the moment because of the energy of the moment, but we kept showing up afterwards, um, even when the cameras were not there, even when, um, you know, the, the quote-unquote excitement of the moment was no longer there. How can we make sure to keep to keep going? Because this work is, is lifelong work. Um, one of the things that really drives me is this idea of becoming a good ancestor. It's what I put on the, you know, subtitle of my book. I, uh, host, a, I host a podcast called Good Ancestor Podcast. I teach anti-racism classes through Good Ancestor Academy. Like it's the through line of everything that I do because it's this constant reminder to me that, you know, my life is not just my own. My life belongs to my children and my children's children and all people who will come after I'm gone. And so I really encourage people to really think long term and not just even of your lifetime, but lifetimes to come because we are the products and the beneficiaries right now of the ancestors who came before us who said, no, you know, slavery is, um, is heinous and should be abolished. Women should have rights, right? 
uh, all of these things have come about the world that we have now is because of the ancestors who came before us and said enough is enough. And so we need to be those ancestors now in this lifetime. I'm sorry, I just had to pause there because what you said really struck me so deeply about that we are the ancestors of uh, people who came before us and that those of us, the people who come after us will look to us and what we did and the way we behave now, the change we made. Uh, that feels really powerful. You talk about how the work you do is a form of healing. Why do you use that term? It's, well, it's, certain, it's, it's healing for me first and foremost. Um, and the thing about not having white privilege is that you are not conditioned to believe that you are the norm and that you are um, superior or that you deserve to be centered or that your life should, you know, have a sense of ease and normalcy that people of color don't have. We, you know, we are conditioned into the complete opposite. And mm-hmm. what we carry with us is our own, you know, the stories of our own um, upbringing and as well as, you know, the things that I've, I'm thinking of in particular of an, inter, uh, an Instagram live I saw the other day of um, David uh, Lowe and he was talking about every black person has a ra- like a racial wound. There's mm-hmm. stories that we have and things that have happened to us that really reminded us, you know, you are a black person um, and this is what that means. And so in doing this work of build, helping to co-create with people around the world, helping to co-create an anti-racist world. It's the, it's the way that I affirm to myself that I matter, that I as a black Muslim woman, I matter. Mm-hmm. My children matter. My parents, my, my husband, my siblings and, and their children, they matter. Um, and it's also about helping to create a world where everybody, people of all races, get to live in the fullness of their humanity, which is not the world we have today. The world we have today says people who are black and brown, their humanity is worth less than people who are white. Um, and, 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 but also for people who are white and who have white privilege, they're also not living in the fullness of their humanity. Because to oppress and to marginalize and to... Um, yeah, to, to do that, to, mm-hmm. to, to be supreme over anyone else also takes away from your own humanity. Absolutely. And that this is what I have found, right? This is what I have found with people who are doing um, me and white supremacy, but also, you know, exploring all other kinds of books and resources and classes on anti-racism. Yes, it's hard. It's, it's really hard to have that mirror held up to you and for you to start questioning things that you thought were normal and realizing actually you've caused a lot of harm in your life. It's so, so hard. But in telling the truth and in unpicking all of those lies and getting to the truth, you actually get to feel more whole. So this is about healing for all of us, for all of humanity. Um, When we say, you know, I, I know a lot of people Hear the hear the um, hashtag or the you know the phrase Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter and they think well you know our own lives matter my life matters too and it's like yes but your life matters already in the society we live in we all lives will matter when Black lives matter too 
And so it's about right, creating right. that healing for, for all of us. All the work you do is incredibly powerful, but I imagine it must take a lot out of you. How do you look after yourself while doing this work? About, um, five, I think, four or five months into beginning, um, when I, first, I so I basically I, I started talking about racism and white supremacy in August of 2017 um, after the Unite the Right rally that happened in Charlottesville, mm. Virginia. And um, I, I wrote an article at the time. It was called I Need to Talk to Spiritual White Women About White Supremacy. And I was calling out and calling in uh, liberal, progressive, spiritual white women who talked about we want to change the world and we want to heal people, but they were not looking at racism and their own privilege. And that up until that point, I had never written about racism or white supremacy. It was my first time ever <laughs> Um, but it went viral very, very quickly. I mean, I think a quarter of a million people in a very short space of time read that article and really initiated me very quickly into this work. Um, and so as you can imagine, maybe, maybe you can't imagine, but back in 2017, talking about white privilege and white supremacy, especially to people who didn't consider themselves racist, was like... Yeah throwing a lit mat it was like throwing a lit match into a, a stack of hay like it was Lena, I'm so sorry I want to talk to you about this forever but I'm running out of time <laughs> I'm so sorry you've been the most fascinating guest thank you so much for joining us uh I the brilliant Layla said please do go and buy her book me and white supremacy work your way through it, do the work. It will absolutely change your life. She is the most amazing woman. And the article she referenced there, calling into spiritual white women, find it. It's a brilliant read. One, two, three, four. That was Leila Saad, I think, giving us inspiration we can all take into the following year. That's all for me from 2020. Gosh, I hope this is all from 2020 for me as well. Um, I will be back in the new year with more badass women. Um, thank you so much for listening. I love that you're all here and I'm so pleased that we get to experience these amazing guests together. If you want to talk to me in 2021, you can find me on social media at Harriet Minter. Or of course, you can also rate, review and subscribe. Leave a little comment. We love that. Um, anything that tells us you're listening makes me happy. In the meantime, take care, have a wonderful new year and I'll see you in 2021. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.